Welcome back, everyone, to the Moon Tower Business Podcast. This is your host, Joseph Obel, and we are speaking today to Guillermo Cornejo, who is the CEO of Ridershare. Guillermo, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, can you tell the uh, the listeners a little bit about uh, Ridershare, what what your company does and what it's all about, please? Yeah. Ridershare is like an Airbnb, but for renting motorcycles instead of home. So people come to the website, they list their motorcycles for rent, and then we find uh, vetted riders that have, you know, motorcycle endorsements and to rent those motorcycles. Um, Owners are protected by our insurance policy, uh, roadside assistance, and, uh, and we also use um, advanced technology to, to make sure that we are only accepting uh, the safer motorcycle riders. And so, yeah, they make money. Uh, the riders find a much wider variety of motorcycles than they would at a traditional rental shop, typically at a lower cost. And so, and we monetize by taking a cut of each transaction. And you're based in Austin, right? Correct. That's good stuff. So you uh, you uh, had a, had a career in working in it looks like in the auto industry, or you or you worked for some uh, auto companies back uh, before you started uh, Ridershare. Can you kind of walk us through your your background and experiences before uh, launching Ridershare? Yeah. Um, I graduated from TCU in the middle of the recession, and uh, the only bi-level skill I learned in college was how to run linear regressions. And uh, so I, I, my first job out of college was with Nissan Motors uh, in a, a analytics for sale, uh, selling used cars. Because of that one tool I knew how to use, I, at the time I didn't even know how to drive a car. <laughs> But, um, but, you know, I, I loved it. I turns out I really liked speed. And uh, then I worked for General Motors in, uh, in pricing subprime auto loans. And then for Hyundai uh, in, in a bunch of different roles, you know, running a call center, uh, uh, loaning money to dealers, uh, you name it. I've been assigned to all sorts of roles in the auto industry. So those are pretty big companies that you work for uh, in the auto industry. What kind of lessons do you think you took from uh, working at those companies and launching your own business? So to me, I was critical. I was working uh, for General Motors. Um, so I worked at a subsidiary of GM. That uh, It was a company that they bought recently called AmeriCredit. And uh, so it wasn't really GM, right? It was more like a finance company. And, but they were famous because they were the only company that was able to securitize auto loans, subprime auto loans during the recession, right? So they were really, really, really good at managing risk. And I also learned that those, uh, those subprime auto loans, they only represent like what, 20% of the industry's loans, but they, uh, they encompass 60% of the profits. Crazy, right? Yeah. So, so when I, you know, when uh, I was renting motorcycles because I couldn't afford to buy one after I crashed one. 
uh, in Dallas, and, and I noticed they were like $200 each, even though they're not that expensive, right? And, and the store that you're renting from, it's like, it's like a shithole. Like, yeah. why is this $200 a day? And so it reminded me a lot of, of, of subprime. People pay higher interest rates because you know, they're perceived to be higher risk. And a lot of banks stay away from subprime because it's too risky. They don't know how to manage the risk. So if you have the discipline, the analytics, and the culture to manage that risk, then it can become a competitive advantage because you have, you know, uh, it, other companies are not as good as you at managing risk, and they can be profitable. And so, and, and you are able to to sort of cherry pick the best customers, and and that's why Subprime Auto is, you know, way more profitable than traditional traditional auto loans. And so I looked at the motorcycle industry, and I thought this is kind of the same. All the car sharing companies and, and RV sharing companies stay away from motorcycles because it's too risky, right? And so there's, there's basically one or two national chains for motorcycle rentals and a lot of mom and pop shops. And so because there's not a lot of competition, they can charge whatever price they want. And, uh, and I thought, you know what? If I use the same risk management techniques that I learned at GM, I can probably cut the insurance costs of renting a motorcycle in half. And then if I use the peer-to-peer model from you know, Airbnb and Turo, I can additionally cut the cost of renting a motorcycle by 60%. And so it's a win-win-win for everyone. We cut the cost of, a mo- of renting a motorcycle so much that the motorcycle owners are still making like really good money. Like, um, you know, they make like $1,000 on a $10,000 motorcycle per month. That's a huge ROI, right? Yep. The renter is paying out half the price of what they normally pay at a rental shop. And we still make a, a very solid uh, gross margin. So it, everybody wins and they win big. So I thought this makes perfect sense. And I started to, you know, to try to do it with no experience in the tech industry whatsoever. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so have you always had kind of a passion for riding motorcycles? And when, when did you get started uh, riding motorcycles? Well, um, I, I hadn't always had a passion. I, I guess I, I got a little a bit of a taste from my dad because he, he owns a motorcycle back in Peru and gave me a ride once. And I was like, man, I really like this. Can I drive it? And I was like, no way. <laughs> And uh, I, uh, I served back in Peru, so I liked adrenaline rushes. And, and then, you know, when I was 23, my girlfriend broke up with me, and, uh, and I had a lot of disposable income suddenly, right? <laughs> so, like, wow, I, I'm not spending all this money on dates, so what do I do? I want adrenaline. And skydiving is too expensive, so I bought a motorcycle. I crashed it within two months. And, uh, but I, you know... I, I, you know, eventually I wanted to get back into it. I just couldn't afford to buy a new one. And that's how I got into renting motorcycles. What was the first motorcycle you bought? A Ninja 250. It's, you know, like a beginner bike. It's still really fast, but I crashed it at 80 miles per hour. Oh, man. Yeah. And, uh, but luckily I didn't hit anything. So I I only broke my hand and had a lot of road rush. But yeah. um, Oh, you're lucky you survived that. Very lucky, and also a painkiller were awesome. Like I understand why so many people get addicted. It's, yeah. <laughs> oh man! So, um, you launched the company. Was did you launch it in Los Angeles or in Austin? 
I launched it originally in Fort Worth, Texas. Okay. Then uh, we moved to LA because we noticed that it was the largest market for motorcycles. And to see the marketplace, when you don't have supply and you don't have demand, it's really hard, right? And so I need a large market like LA and I needed to be there so I could go talk to people, handle business cards, uh, and, you know, and do everything in my power to get the word out. And so like the first year we, we focused in LA, we grew the inventory there to almost 500 motorcycles. And, uh, and then once we, you know, once we had critical mass and, and raised a round of funding, we moved back to Texas because, you know, it's just way lower cost to operate here. And at the end of the day, we are a, you know, cost is our main competitive advantage. So it makes a lot of sense to be in that. So what were the first steps you had to take when you, you said, hey, I'm going to launch this? I mean, how, how long did it take to develop a website and the technology to, to be able to do that? And what did your team look like when you, when you first started? Well, when I first started, I didn't have a team. I wanted to bootstrap and keep all the profits for myself. And I outsourced an app to India, and it was terrible. And, uh, and I also discovered that it was really difficult to market because most people uh, search for motorcycle rentals on Google and apps don't come up. So like everyone thinks, yeah, build an app, build an app, but it's, that's not, that, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And so I, had, I wasted $25,000 and have to start over from scratch. And the second time uh, I built a website, again, outsourced, and uh, it was terrible. So I learned, you know what, I need a technical co-founder. Then I went for like five different potential co-founders. Uh, I, I found them anywhere I could, you know, meetups, LinkedIn. Uh, and then finally I met Brendan Lamb on Reddit. Um, on Reddit are motorcycles. He, <laughs> he lives in Pennsylvania. And we met online and he's like, dude, I love the, ta- the stack that you chose. I love motorcycles, let's do this. And he was so much better than any of the other people I had worked before that even though I don't have a background in, in, in tech, I just like, there's no way I can find someone better. And so I gave him a lot of equity. He we started from scratch a new website. And then this much better website was launched in February of 2018. And since then, we, we, uh, things have been just taking off. But it took, you know, I would three years of failure before, before I learned enough to be, uh, <laughs> to be successful. Interesting. So also earlier you talked about before you started the company, um, after you had that accident, you wanted to rent motorcycles and you'd rent them for a, a pretty high cost. Uh, where, like before, before uh, riders share, where could you rent motorcycles from? Like were, they, were there companies doing that or what was out yeah. there? There's a, there's a big company named Eagle Rider and then a lot of small mom and pop shops and a couple of regional franchises. And so, I mean, are they, you find them online or is it, are they just operating in certain areas or? They operate pretty much everywhere. And yeah, you can find them online or, you know, the old school way on travelogues, catalogs. <laughs> How about today? What is your, what does your competition look like? It's all the same. Uh, there's also, uh, Hertz uh, introduced a new motorcycle offering last year, Hertz Ride. But, you know, they filed for bankruptcy, so who knows what's going to happen to that? And uh, there's another motorcycle sharing app out of Chicago 
but they are like way smaller, way behind. They actually launched before we did, but uh, you know they they focus on like the wrong things, and so they 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 fell behind. Gotcha. So uh, what is your uh, what is your revenue model? Um, we take a cut of each transaction, and we sell ancillary products to to renters such as you know damage waivers and uh, supplemental liability and stuff like that. Gotcha. And uh, so kind of, I, I read in the news recently, you, you got a uh, Series A funding, of, I think $2 million? Correct. And that was, that, that was from uh, Live Oak Ventures here in Austin? Yes, Live Oak uh, Ventures was the lead investor. Okay. And what does your kind of cap table look like now um, with, that, with that investment? Well, what do you mean? <laughs> like, I mean, do you have other investors in, on your cap table or are you looking for additional funding? What, what, is the, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, we, we have a, um, a couple of uh, other funds, including Texas Halo Fund from Houston and um, several angels, tech stars. We did tech stars uh, in, in 2019, in the summer of 2019. So uh, there's, a, there's a, a lot of people on the cap table. Um, where you know if uh, if a good investor with you know um, useful knowledge knocks on my door and says hey I would like to invest you know twenty grand in your company I will say I won't say no but uh, but yeah other than that we're currently you know focused on on the on, on the product in twenty twenty one we plan to focus on growth so and uh, and but yeah but fundraising is pretty much done. <laughs> And do you have a, I mean, have the investors that you have so far been able to give you some guidance on, on, uh, on taking the company forward? A lot. Yeah. So one of the partner at Live Oak um, that I'm working with, David Stewart, used to be a chief business officer at Turo. And Turo is the, the largest car sharing, peer-to-peer car sharing platform in, in the world. And they're worth like 1.3 billion, right? And so they know it, he, he knows a lot of the challenges and how to solve them. And more importantly, he's surrounded us with advisors, uh, you know, in, in tech, product management, marketing, every single area. Uh, get, like the best people that, that used to work at Turo or VRBO or Al Dorsey, you name it. And so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to hire a product manager. We have these advisors that, you know, come in a few hours a week and, uh, and they're really, really, really helpful. And so I feel like, like, like we can operate like close to Airbnb levels of quality, but you know, we only have two software developers, no product managers, no designers. That's good stuff. Can you talk about your experience uh, fundraising? Um, how, how, how did that go for you? Can you talk about the level of uh, preparation that you need to do to, to make pitches to investors, to angels and VCs? Yeah, man, it's, uh, it's awesome and it also sucks. <laughs> it's awesome because you learn so much. The people sitting across the desk are usually very talented or very experienced, successful people. So um, their advice, their criticism is really helpful really like i would not be where we are if i hadn't been pitching to investors so much and and getting so many notes um but you know the other side of the coin is that 
you get so many no's and it's also pretty frustrating because a lot of people just don't understand your market, right? They're like, yeah, we're a seed investor and invest in marketplaces, but they don't really uh, get it. Or like, for example, I was pitching in, in San Francisco and, uh, and the investor was like, why don't you do scooters instead of motorcycles? You know, it's like, in, I just had shown him a slide with how, you know, there's like 9 million registered motorcycles compared to like half a million scooters in the US. I'm like, I get it. You're in San Francisco. It's like the liberal bastion, you know, and it's not a great city for motorcycles. Everything's so cramped in there, right? But if you go to rural areas, if you go to like, you know, the Midwest or <laughs> other parts of the country, Motorcycles are way more popular. There's, you know, two million people congregate every year in Sturgis. He's like, what? You can't, you can't never heard of Sturgis. I'm like, are you kidding me? So, so you get a lot of frustrating moments like that. You also get, a, I mean, let's be real. There's a lot of people that should not be venture capitalists. It's like this kid, like this 23 year old kid, like, you know, did a, one year of investment banking at Goldman Sachs and suddenly he can tell you how to run your business. Like, <laughs> bitch, please. Like, so uh, <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot of those. Um, it's very frustrating that, to see startups that are like, have no fundamentals get funded. And then six months later, they say, oh my God, they have to file for bankruptcy or they have people. It's like, could have seen it coming from a mile away. And then the other part that is frustrating, but also, Occasional, they always ask the same like 50 or so questions. They all claim to have a very specialized angle or our approach is different. They're, they're, they're all the same. They all have this very similar um, like return targets. They all have very, they all want mar you know, markets that are large, blah, blah. So it's, uh, once you understand what they want, uh, you ask answer a question, it, uh, you know, after you pitch to a hundred of them, it becomes pretty repetitive. Like, you, you know exactly what they want to hear, <laughs> you give it to them, and and uh, and if it's a good fit, it, it, it works. The, the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make, I think, is uh, not researching the VCs well. Like, if you, if you pitch to a Series D investor that focuses on AI, but you're a seed state startup doing, I don't know, anything that's not AI, you're wasting his time and your time, right? Right. And so you really need to narrow down your, the pool of investors that you should pitch to. And then, uh, and then you need to pitch to all of them at the same time. Like that, get warm introductions, send those cold emails to everyone at the same time and schedule all of those meetings in the same week to create uh, homo. Yeah. But, uh, that's really hard to do. Um, then you, incubators like Techstars can help you, um, you know, obtain access to, to investors. I, I had zero access before the, uh, that. I mean, in fact, I had zero access to Techstars. For me to get into Techstars, I had to, first I got an MBA at UCLA, uh, full scholarship. It, it freed up time for me to work on the startup. And in the, in the MBA program, there were all these competitions, right? And uh, the judges and the competitions were, some of them were venture capitalists. And so one of them recommended me to Techstars, and that's how we went to Techstars. 
because uh, it's super competitive, right? Like you're, you're talking a thousand companies applying and only 10 make it. And so, so if once you get into tech starts, then okay, you pass that hurdle. So, so, no, so VCs are way more likely to talk to you. And, and uh, so Techstars introduced me to all the, pretty much every single investor in LA and uh, every single seed stage investor in marketplaces in the world. So that's why I was able to speak to like a hundred people and uh, yeah, it was super, a super interesting experience. It sucks, but it, it's, it's awesome. That's funny. And so can you talk about uh, your experience in, in Techstars and, and the benefits that, and the lessons you learned uh, from participating in their program? Yeah, I mean, there are so many. One of the biggest ones for me was the, the caliber of talent that you are expected to recruit nowadays. The reality is that the world is getting more and more competitive, right? And so for you to succeed in, in, in tech, you need it's, it's a lot harder than it was 10 years ago. I remember I hired a, a friend of mine to, to do operations. I'm like, hey, I'll make you COO. It sounds cool. And the tech stars uh, director, Anna Barber, she was like, are you nuts? No. Changed his title immediately, like yelled at me, right? And it's like, if you want to hire a COO, he better have been a CEO in his prior role. You know, that is that you want to hire a product manager, he had better have been the product manager at Airbnb. You know, like that's the kind of, you need to send a message to venture capitalists that you're able to attract elite talent, even from big companies like that. Setting the bar high. Extremely high. They set the bar so high. Um, we were like the wild card at Techstars because I don't, I didn't go to an Ivy League school or I didn't work at Techstars before. And my co-founder didn't even go to college or, uh, you know, same, same, same boat as me. And everyone else in the, in the program had like PhDs in physics. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah. And one of the, you know, using that knowledge, I, I've, I've now hired an ex-CEO that is also a lawyer and has sold the company before to work for me as a, Head of operations, <laughs> not even COO, right? And so, so now I'm, I have, I don't think we have, we quite have the talent yet to say that we're an, an elite tech startup, but we, at least we're closing the gap. You know, now we need to hire data scientists and all other things that to get there. But uh, but yeah, you're on, it, you're on the right track. That's awesome. It, it's it's crazy competitive, man. It's uh and. Uh, and then the metrics, right? So marketplaces have sort of fallen out of favor because the, the Uber and Lyft IPOs were not as, they didn't go as well as people expected. They, those companies are still losing money. Airbnb, they were doing great, but now they're losing money. And, and those are just the big ones, the successful ones. There's a ton of um, smaller unicorns that are also kind of like in Panel. So the, for marketplaces, the, the expectations are a little higher than now than they are for, for other the verticals. And so, like, it's possible to, to raise money without any revenue if you are in InsurTech or FinTech. For marketplaces, you better have a ton of traction because it's really, really hard to build both supply and demand, right? So you're not going to get any money, pre-seed money, because it's very likely to fail. 
and, and it's more than that. You have to get supply, you have to get demand, and you have to get it cost effectively. So you, have, you need to prove that that, you know, those, that investment that they're going to give you, you're going to be able to use it to continue to grow as opposed to, you know, to learn how to find product fit. Now, with marketplaces, you better find that product fit right away before you raise money. It's, uh, but then, but, you know, on the other side of the equation is that if you are successful with a marketplace and you have good uh, unit economics, uh, a good LTV to CAC ratio, um, you have incredible modes. The network effects are very difficult to beat. And then on top of network effects, you, you know, there's, there's usually other, other things that help you, um, that help you stay on top. In our case, uh, it's, yeah, network effects, risk management for motorcycles, and, uh, and, you know, and the brand recognition, the organic search results for motorcycle rentals. And so, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult to build a marketplace, it's both buy and demand. And then if on top of that, you have something else, it, uh, you know, it's, it's practically impossible that somebody else will come in and beat you, even if they, they're much larger. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of traction right now. Can you talk about um, the numbers of uh, generally the number of renters that you see right now on your platform and the number of people that are, uh, I guess, well, I don't know what you call them, but people that are putting their motorcycles out there for rent? Yeah, we have had uh, over 11,000 motorcycles listed on our platform. And uh, we have about 55,000 users. Okay. Military. And you also, you talked about, uh, you have some type of insurance or, or, or the, the way you manage uh, risk for, for this type of concept. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so when we onboard a new user, I mean, it looks like just like Airbnb pretty much, um, except we required, you know, we extract the motorcycle endorsement to check that they, that they know how to ride a motorcycle. And, um, but in the, in, the same, in the same process, we extract out 200 data points of the user, right? Uh, so your email address, we, we scrape the web, to how long have you had it? Is it really you? Your phone number, is, is it a DOIP, is it a prepaid phone, or is it an AT&T or Verizon subscription? And, uh, and so on, right? What type of motorcycle are you renting? How far in advance and your behavior on the website and, and all these data points, we, we then use them to, uh, against our past data on who crashed and who didn't to calibrate a model and predict the probability that you will crash a motorcycle. And, and it works. And so by managing this risk, we uh, were able to reduce insurance claims or at least price for the for a additional risk and it allows us to charge lower prices for the majority of our customers and um and in fact we we, we run a, such a lean operation that even even our highest risk customers are seeing lower prices than than uh than traditional motorcycle rental shops so uh so yeah in we we noticed that the more we lower prices the more likely the higher conversion rates. And so when we lowered the extra trip fee that we charge from $9 to $3, so just a $6 difference, increases our conversion rate by 50%. So, so it's a huge competitive advantage because then 
you onboard more customers, you get more data, you get better onboarding even more customers. And so you get this flywheel going on in addition to the marketplace network effect of having more motorcycles and, and more people to rent those motorcycles. So you talked about uh, some of the data points that you collect and uh, when people use your platform. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about the criteria that you look for uh, for users, uh, people renting and people uh, putting the motorcycle out there? For example, uh, do, you, do you have to look to see if the person has a motorcycle license? Do you have to see if, there, if there's valid registration on the motorcycle that's being rented out, et cetera? Yeah. Right now, it's pretty much, if you're 21 or older and have a valid motorcycle license, we'll let you in. Uh, we're doing this to you know, get as much data as we can, um, but, uh, but you may face a higher price to compensate for a risk, right? We do not use gender, we do not use uh, race or anything that or you would discriminate against anyone. And, uh, and in fact, uh, yeah, we, we, almost, we almost do the opposite. Uh, we, uh, for the owners, right now we're super lenient with who can lease a motorcycle. Uh, we, we don't require registration up front. We only require it if there's an insurance claim. So there's a pretty strong incentive for them to, you know, to have everything in order. And uh, we do require they self-report the condition of the tires, the, when was the last time that they did a, they'd say service a motorcycle and, um, and the mileage in the motorcycle. And so like, say, I mean, I have a motorcycle. I, I didn't know about this before contacting you and I would like to do something like this, but like for myself, say I want to list my motorcycle on there. What steps do I need to take? Does it cost me anything to list it? It's free to list. You take a few pictures, you select the year, make model, you put in a description, you, you report the condition of the motorcycle like we discussed and, uh, and that's it. You're pretty much good to go. And, uh, and then from, from the renter's perspective, you need to create a profile, you verify your license, we check that your face matches your, your license, and uh, it, it's all instant, and uh, it's a little bit tedious, but uh, once you only do it once, and from then on, renting a motorcycle only takes like a couple of clicks. Gotcha. How about geographically, um, what markets do you service currently? Currently, we are in pretty, pretty much every one of the top 50 cities in the U.S. Um, and uh, yeah, we have, uh, yeah, it's, we're, we're pretty much all over the place, <laughs> but we, we focus on the top 40. Do you, uh, do you envision in the future uh, providing this service internationally? Absolutely. The majority of our customers are travelers. And so, so yeah, I mean, we, we we're going to remain focused in the U.S. for the next three years or so, and then we, we plan to go abroad. Do you know what, what, uh, where you would start? Europe. Um, okay. It's, uh, in Europe, people are twice as likely to own uh, a motorcycle in the U.S., and, uh, and there's, you know, it's just, there's way more people there. You know, it's, it's 550 million people, and so, so it makes a lot of sense. A lot of our customers are European tourists. So if we expand into Europe, it's going to grow the U.S. business. By, you know, if we build brand awareness in Europe, it's going to help in the U.S. Uh, basically, that's basically where we call global network effects.
so yeah, we it, Europe is really hard because you need to have your website translated into all these languages. You need insurance policies for each one of these countries. And so it's, it's a pain, but um, so that's why, it, that's why a lot of startups are successful in the US, right? Because as soon as you start, you have access to 350 million people that, that speak the same language and operate under the same rule of law. So, but yeah, once we are more consolidated in the US, we definitely plan to expand aggressively into Europe. How about, what, what did you learn when, when doing market research? Um, I think you quoted a number of motorcycles that, that are out there in the United States. What, what kind of stuff did you learn when, when, when researching that? I did a, like six months of research before deciding to launch the company. There are 30 million people in the U.S. that have a motorcycle license and a little under 9 million registered motorcycles. So that means there's more than 20 million people that have motorcycle license and don't own a motorcycle. Wow. I know. A lot of people quit riding when they have kids. Right now, we are targeting like the more experienced rider, like the more uh, like the enthusiast because they tend to crash less frequently. But as the company grows and we get better at managing risk and all this stuff, we're going to switch our focus to that uh, to that X rider and uh, and to beginner riders to try to to get them into into riding motorcycles, right? Yeah, good stuff. What do you think has been uh, your biggest challenge so far in in uh, operating your company? Um, besides fundraising, <laughs> insurance, right? Um, there's only one or two companies that do commercial motorcycle insurance nationally, and they're very old school. Right, peer-to-peer rentals, you crazy? You don't have control of the motorcycle? No way. And then by the same token, uh, five years ago when I was trying to start a company, peer-to-peer rentals were, nobody has done this. We don't, we don't have any data on this. So peer-to-peer is what's really hard to insure. And then on top of that, peer-to-peer motorcycle? Are you nuts? <laughs> so forever to get there. When, I, when we relaunched uh, in, in February of 2018, um, we were losing $100 per transaction with the insurance, right? And, uh, and it was intentional because I knew once we accumulated that data, we were going to be able to renegotiate a better deal. So like that they were severely overpricing our policies. And, um, and sure enough, they did. Then 10 months later, as we grew and got even more data, we repriced it again and we finally had um, positive mid economics. And then two years later, we don't just have positive unit economics, we have better unit economics than say Turo or Outdoorsy. And then, um, and, we, and we continue to improve our, our, our gross margins every, you know, every month as, we, as the company grows. Uh, I focus, I spend a lot of my time doing data analytics, like way more than most CEOs. I think I'm probably a really bad CEO. Like, you know, you're supposed to be a leader, be with your people and stuff. I spend most of my time um, figuring out how the hell are we going to uh, grow sustainably for the next five years. <laughs> That's smart. That's good stuff. Some <sighs> might disagree, uh, but yeah. Uh, it's, it's tough, right? Because uh, 
in modern corporations, you're asking the, the, the leader to also make decisions, right? And to be good at making decisions, like decision science, it's become, you really need to be good at math, understanding how data works, how it's collected, uh, causation flows. It's like, the good decision makers are like nerdy types, you know? And then good leaders are the opposite of nerdy types, right? They're, they're talkers, they make you feel good, you know, you connect with them, they listen to you. And so to be a good CEO nowadays, holy crap, I mean, it's, 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 it's impossible, man. Like, I feel like companies need to have two leaders, you know, the, the, the decision maker and the leader. <laughs> Anyways, it's, I don't know, I'm just ranting. <laughs> so uh, talk a little bit about how you think COVID-19 affected your business. Oh man, it was, it, it was tough. So in the first two months of the year, we were growing over 500% year over year. I was so excited. You know, I was like, in two years, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire forever. And then in April, COVID hit and, you know, our revenue just tanked. Uh, things are, uh, are, have bounced back a little bit. We're still growing year over year but not even, not even close to 500%, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's been really hard. But on the bright side, well, it's, it's allowed us time to focus on, on the product, on the risk management, and uh, delivering a better experience, customer service, uh, working on mobile apps. And so hopefully in 2021, when things go back to normal, um, those same customers are now going to have a much better experience and we're going to, so that, you know, in 2022, a lot of, more of them return to, to rent motorcycle from us again, right? And um, so it, it kind of worked out. It, it also worked out that we were able to close our annual funding uh, <laughs> in these difficult times. And uh, I'm certainly very grateful to, to Live Oak Venture Partners. That's good stuff. Um, Austin has a uh, motorcycle rally each year called the Rot Rally, Republic of Texas. And there's other big motorcycle rallies throughout the United States. Have you considered uh, partnering up with one of these rallies or participating in any way in any of these? Absolutely. Uh, now, this year, most of them have been canceled. And, but uh, normally, well, back, or, or back in California, I would attend those rallies and hand business cards myself because those sponsorships are expensive. There's no way. And so this year, uh, Sturge is still happening, probably going to be very likely attended. But uh, because of that, we were able to get a really good deal. And so if you go to their website, we are the, the motorcycle rental option for them. And we got it at like a fair of the price and it's gonna last for 12 months. So it's going to help us until uh, even for the 2021 rally. So, yeah. Um, but with that said, all their smaller rallies uh, haven't really tried. I mean, this, this is the first time that we have like an actual budget to do this type of stuff, you know? Yeah. So, uh, depending on how Sturgis works out, we might sponsor more rallies. And, but for sure, I will attend all the local rallies and hand out all the business cards and continue to do the, the groundwork. <laughs> Excellent. You talked uh, about insurance and the kind of the struggles you've had with uh, with insurance for the company. 
Um, what kind of uh, government regulations have you had to deal with in starting and growing your company? Um, so in, in our world, the, the biggest one is just the state minimum liability requirements for cars and motorcycles. And but so that's the only reason why I need an insurance company because they have the licenses to comply with those requirements. Otherwise, we could just self-insure. You know, I'll just pay for the claims when they happen. But um, but yeah, so that's you know that's that's the insurance problem. That's basically it. We don't really have other like yeah. I, I think your Uber has these regulatory problems, right? Where hey, you know, you're paying me less than minimum wage. Am I a contractor or an employee? We don't really have those because we're renting out assets. We're not renting out labor. So it, it's on, on that front, it's a lot easier. With that said, we can't operate in New York because the way insurance works there is differently. It follows the motorcycle, not the person. So uh, no peer-to-peer -peer rental companies operate there. And, uh, and we don't operate in Michigan because they... Uh, Insurance law there requires the third-party liability company to pay for all the hospital bills of the of the driver, and so with motorcycles, that just it's impossible to be profitable. You know, if we're gonna pay for the, the hospital bills, uh, you know, we cover the motorcycle, but not the rider. They should have their own health insurance. Do you think that will change in the future, or do you see? Uh, your company lobbying New York and Michigan to try to change their regulations? Well, well we're too small, but Michigan is already, uh, they already have some deals in, in place to change that back to where, where it was before. And New York, I know Turo is leading the way with lobbying for car sharing, but uh, they're getting blocked by all these current companies. So it's going to be tough. But um, with that said, we just have a lot of motorcycles parked in New Jersey right outside of Manhattan. So it doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, folks, you can just go to New Jersey and, and uh, rent a motorcycle there. Not that far. Yep. Um, you talked about your, uh, your co-founder earlier, um, I guess when you launched. Can you uh, talk about what your team looks like today and uh, how many employees you have? Yeah, we have eight employees. Um, and, uh, you know, we, it's me, Brandon, my technical co-founder. We recruited uh, Jose Valera, he's, uh, he's from Austin, and uh, he's a lawyer. He once ran for major at Austin, but didn't win. Um, he worked for this startup called RideScout, which was acquired by Daimler and BMW, and then merged with the, uh, another startup called Movil, and then he rides up the ranks, and... Uh, he uh, recently sold Moville, and and then he's like, "Hey, man, I love motorcycles. Uh, I'm from Austin, and uh, let's work together." So it's, it, it worked out perfectly. We also have uh, two more software developers, uh, both of them based in Austin, and uh, and three people doing customer service and, and sales. Do you? Um... Right now you have a, a typical motorcycle available for uh, folks to rent peer-to-peer. Uh, -peer. Um, do, you, do you see any different options or services that you're going to be offering in the future, uh, like ATVs, dirt bikes, or things like that? You know, there are some products coming this year that I can't tell you about because they're, you know, really cool. I don't, I don't want our competitors to copy them. 
But uh, regarding dirt bikes, yes, we were writing a separate insurance policy for off-road usage. And so we're going to dip our toes with dirt bikes. And depending on how those perform, we might expand to all off-road power sports. Awesome. I'm super excited about snowmobiles, you know? Yeah. So now they have motorcycle rentals, but also they're really cool. I've never been on one, but I would love to try. Yeah, they're awesome. Um, have you, uh, have you gathered feedback from, from people renting, uh, motorcycles on your platform and people that are renting them out? Yes. All the time. In fact, I still do a customer service. I, I did customer service full time for the first two years and, um, and I still do customer service every other day. So yeah. <laughs> what, so what, what do you, what, do you, what kind of stuff do you hear from them? Oh man. At the beginning, yes. Every single thing that was wrong or we could do better in our website you know it's like little do they know how hard it is and uh and that we only have one software developer doing everything uh, now it's a lot better um we get mostly positive feedback but we still occasionally get some request feature requests or oh and then of course when somebody cries the motorcycle that's you know it's, it's never a positive experience and so you try to make it better and uh and then we have some people that don't understand that insurance doesn't cover, you know, your Harley David having a defect, <laughs> and so, or that if you didn't do your oil changes for the last two years, that's not our fault. So yeah, there's uh, well, there's some things that we need to get better at communicating. It's 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 crazy hard. Like we only have so much space on the website. You don't want it to be too cluttered, and you don't want to, you know, people to get distracted that they don't end up completing a sale and but at the same time you need to cram in there all this information to make a transaction possible and safe right you know we have insurance we have road assistance but insurance doesn't really cover this or that it only covers damage to a motorcycle or theft um we have uh, i don't know we we ask you for your motorcycle license because it's required in every state in the united states <laughs> yes believe it or not <laughs> some people don't know that um there are helmets if you click here there are, it's it's uh it's a lot of a lot of information to make a transaction successful and safe and so you can do you can also do uh people can leave reviews on your website for somebody they rented a motorcycle from or uh, or a renter right correct and so people can so if i want to rent a motorcycle from from you you have your motorcycle up there i can see what other people their experience was renting from you yes and so that's a huge factor in building trust, right? Because um, you don't want, if you want to rent a motorcycle from a stranger, you know, it, you, you, that stranger better have a lot of good reviews. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. That's important. I would want to see that too. Yeah, luckily for us, like the vast majority of people leave really good reviews. I mean, if you ride a motorcycle, it's so much fun that you're going to leave a good review, right? <laughs> yeah. It's usually only bad reviews if, they, if the renter crashed, if the motorcycle, you know, had an oil leak or something like that. And, uh, or if the guy was, if the person was a total douche, but that's not very common. And so, yeah. And, and usually if they have a, you know, one or two bad reviews, we, we ban them from the platform. You know, we, we really try to deliver quality experiences. I don't have any experience in the peer to peer rental world. Can you kind of talk about what a typical situation looks like when, when you're, when somebody's renting a motorcycle on your platform? In other words, for example, uh, does does the renter go to the owner's house 
and meet them there? Do they meet at a neutral location? How does the transaction actually go down? Yes, it typically takes place at the owner's uh, location, house. Uh, but we allow them to set up a pickup location anywhere they want. So if they want to meet up in a gas station to protect their privacy, then so be it, right? We, we do know their, their physical address, but, you know, so we, they, they can use a different address for their listings than for their profile. Interesting. Um, do you ever see uh, your company doing any type of collaboration or partnering with, uh, with any major motorcycle companies? Yeah. In fact, I tried to reach out to like almost all of them. Um, I, the most success I had so far was with Can-Am. But uh, yeah, it's, a lot of them have recently launched their own rental programs. So they sort of see us as competitors. And, uh, but, but that's okay. We, I, I think once we achieve a little bit more scale, it's going to be easier for, for me to partner with them. Hey, look, we have this brand. We can drive you demand. And we can help you cut costs on your own operations so your rentals become more, more, co- you know, more competitive. Sure. Um, do you see any more activity in, in any part of the country more than you do in others? Like in, other, in terms of users on your platform? Yeah. Well, during the winter, we see a lot of activity in Florida and in California and then in Arizona. And during the summer, it's more spread out, and we see a lot of activity in, in Colorado and, and Alaska. Oh, Hawaii is also a pretty big uh, uh, spot all year round. And so it's extremely seasonal, I would say that. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so we're getting kind of towards the end of the uh, podcast here. I got a couple final questions for you to, uh, to wrap up. Uh, number one, what is your favorite motorcycle? And number two, what's your favorite restaurant in Austin? Hmm. My favorite motorcycle changes every six months. You know, I own like five different motorcycles and, and I started this company because I like variety. So this answer is going to change pretty soon. But right now, I really like the looks on the Indian Scout bobber. Oh my God, it looks so cool. I really, I re- I really want that bike. I was going to buy that bike, but the nearest dealer that had it was in Houston. So... I went with a Kawasaki instead. And uh, my favorite restaurant in Austin is, uh, I really like Tamale House. Uh, my Jose's parents own it. So, uh, so yeah, we, we go there to have business meetings all the time. Been there many times, I love it. Great margaritas. Yes. Guillermo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Guillermo Cornejo, CEO of Ridershare. Uh, Guillermo, can you plug the, your website so people can uh, find your company? www.com riders-share.com awesome uh folks check them out uh rent a motorcycle here in austin uh take a tour of your city on, on a motorcycle from uh from this peer-to-peer platform that Guillermo has thank you again Guillermo, for joining us take care bye-bye Thanks for listening into our conversation with the creator of Riders Share. Stay tuned next week when we talk to the creators and owners of Sao Chinese Delivery. If you've liked what you've heard so far, please consider subscribing and giving us a good review. As always, take care and stay healthy.